Welcome to Human Rights Live and our Women's Month podcast titled Securing Women and Children's Rights. This podcast centers around the struggles of women refugees. We focus on the issue which presents major setbacks for women whose marriage breaks down or their partner dies or abandons the family. We explore how refugee women's organizing has made a difference. Through it, we join you in celebrating the many contributions women have made to change in South Africa. But we also acknowledge refugee women's ongoing challenges in the face of South Africa being a predominantly patriarchal society. We chose that protest song and the voices of women who led the historic Women's March on the 9th of August 1956, because the actions taken by South African women almost 70 years ago continue to inspire women across the African continent. Importantly, these women mobilized across race and class. They were also strategic to avoid arrest for attending a public meeting. Each woman carried a separate petition for the then minister, Stradom, stating their objection to the extension of past laws to black African women. The protest was victorious. With me is my colleague Epifani Mukasano from the Human Rights Media Centre and Mary Tull, Director of Whole World Women's Association, whose vision is a world where all women live in dignity. We are talking about the role of women in defending human rights in South Africa. Mary has a legal background and comes from Cameroon. She appreciates and praises the contribution of South African women. I think before, as refugee women, one of the highlights that we have learned from South African women and in terms of gender equality is the fact that the women in this country have taught us so much about organizing and promoting or advancing your demands as far as your rights are concerned. You are right, Mary. We are stronger together. And before 1956 and afterwards, South African women made huge sacrifices to achieve human rights for all, including refugees. In many ways, women asylum seekers and refugees are the most vulnerable sector of our society some having suffered repeated human rights violations in their countries of origin and here. And this is in spite of international humanitarian declarations, human rights and refugee laws. Although our much-praised constitution enshrines equal rights for women, it's rarely not enough. In a patriarchal society like ours, women often need additional support to access this equality. 
they are undoubtedly more vulnerable and under more pressure than men carrying the major responsibility for their families and children. They are mostly the ones who take their children to health centres and enrol them in schools. They do the cooking and house chores. They care for the sick. And where they can, they also work to earn. On top of this, women have to queue for documentation, sometimes every six months. In this position, the idea of women's equality simply disappears. On paper, women may have equal rights, but in practice, most have to work far harder than their male counterparts to enjoy these rights. The question that begs to be answered is, with this beautiful constitution, who understands what a refugee woman's right is? How many women in South Africa understand their rights? Who has the opportunity to know what the constitution says? There is a challenge because a refugee woman who is focusing on all other things but her rights will not understand that she has a right to be treated equally before this law. Fortunately or unfortunately, uh, the Refugee Act does not discriminate between women and men. It defines who is a refugee and who can seek asylum in South Africa. Hence, women do not have specific laws that apply to them. Therefore, there is the structural discrimination about women who are seeking asylum. I also want to confirm that by saying some of these women are not aware that these are structural barriers. Because for example, a husband and a wife comes to South Africa and they are seeking asylum. The husband is the lead applicant in their file and then follows the wife, the children, and etc., the grandchildren. You mentioned the lead or primary applicant. The primary applicant may be male or female. This is the person who applies on behalf of the family at a refugee reception office. What interests me is how often this is the male in the family because of patriarchal values amongst applicants and officials at home affairs. However, the whole family is then documented through the primary applicant and the file is in the primary applicant's name. But changes in people's lives and partnerships are bound to happen, and particularly with the uncertainty and stress whereby refugees may spend over two decades waiting for their applications to be processed. All family members who are linked to the primary applicant's file end up undocumented, which has terrible consequences for families. If it happens that the husband passes away, or the husband relocates to another country, or there is a divorce or a separation, this woman can no longer access that file to extend her stay in South Africa, either as a refugee or as an asylum seeker. She needs to start from square one. 
to re-establish her identity in a country in which she has already been recognized as a refugee. The question that begs to be answered is, where is the right for women? Why does it become so difficult for this woman to re-establish herself if her spouse passes away? So these are some of the situations that you would say there is an infringement on women's rights as far as seeking asylum is concerned. It's really an important issue, Mary. Shared documentation can also keep women stuck in nowhere land undocumented. As an example, listen to Mika's story. Mika came to South Africa aged seven in 1997 with her mother and her siblings. They joined her father who had fled to South Africa ahead of them to escape persecution in his country. Because he came first, he was the primary applicant. The entire family was joined on his file when they arrived in 1997. The initial application went smoothly, but in 2011, Mika explains her father left them without a trace. In other words, the file holder was no longer around to renew the family refugee status permits. Without my father, it was really difficult because the Department of Home Affairs required him to be, to be there. I did not understand how they could not assist us because he was nowhere to be found after two years of searching for him. The department was renewing our papers every six months. We continuously renewed them every six months for four years. And in that time, we could not do anything. Without him, it became very difficult. They needed him to be there. Mika's family members had to renew the refugee status continuously. Until one day we received a call from the immigration office. We had an interview with, with them independently without my father. Each family member got their own file because we were all over 18. We went individually to open our individual files, all with the same Cape Town refugee number. Mom was interviewed on her own, and my sister and my brother and I were all interviewed on our own. Each of us got her own file that expired during the pandemic in August 2020. And then when lockdown restriction lifted, we went to our interviews around May 2022. We thought our lives were going to be easier, but it did not get any easier. We went to the lawyers at the University of Cape Town and they assisted us to apply for our documents online. Since then, we have not been documented. Mika's experience suggests that NGOs such as UCT Refugee Law Clinic, as well as officials at Home Affairs, tried to assist them, but the process is stuck without explanation. 
This must have been so frustrating, Mika. And without the required documentation, the refugee status permit, Mika cannot work. I'm unemployed at the moment because it's difficult to apply for a job without renewed refugees status. I've tried to find a job. I was working at the restaurant, but after COVID-19 pandemic, they could not take me back. I had to find, I had to find something with my papers renewed. So I stopped working. It's been like this for two years. I'm unemployed, but I continued to, to search for work. I'm prepared to do anything, including cleaning people's houses. It must be tough, Mika. Are there other consequences you experienced of not being documented? I have two kids, two daughters, but I could not register them. Their father is South African. One is two years and the other is turning one. Both undocumented. Sounds like a difficult situation for your family. So how do you survive? How do you pay rent, all that? We are surviving by God's grace. We get food from our families when we are in need. They provide where they can. Regarding uh, your, the wait, the long wait that you had because the main applicant was not around, do you have any recommendations that you would make to the Department of Home Affairs to make things much easier for the women and also for the children? Because if the main applicant is not there, it's not only the the women, even the children um, also um, have a problem. I think it's very important if they look at our Cape Town refugees number and see how many people are under that number and try to renew our papers because our lives are on hold. We can't do anything at all without our papers. They should communicate and tell us what progress they are making. Is there too much to ask for from the department? Lack of documents is a major issue, but there are many more. Mika's experience has been horrible. However, since January 2020, new refugee regulations have come into effect for situations like Mika's. The regulations allow refugees who lose their primary applicant to complete an individual form online. By submitting an individual application, each family member is able to acquire their own file. Children turning 18 would be given their own file, while children under 18 would remain on their mother's file. However, this regulation is little known so, once again, the problem has been addressed on paper. But in practice, there is little indication this new law works. Because very few people know about it. And because of the lack of communication from and within the Department of Home Affairs. 
the wheels of change move slowly. But there is another story related to the new regulations. What is exciting is that we feel some ownership of this positive change in that it is the result of refugee women mobilizing. The process was initiated by a group of Rwandan women who approached the Human Rights Media Center to assist them. To retell the detail of the story, Shelley contacted Chantal Uwamahoro. You may remember that she discussed getting her Canadian citizenship in podcast two. This is how the process unfolded. I recall, Chantal, your excitement that to be part of the delegation meeting with Naledi Pando on the 19th of June, 2013. Can you take us back to that day and the conversation that you had with her that got you to organize the women's meeting? Oh, I remember very well, and still, it's still fresh in my mind uh, because we have been waiting to meet the Minister of Home Affairs for a long time until when um, we approached Human Rights Media Center, Sherry Gan, that I'm talking to, who worked hard to get us um, to get an appointment to the National Minister of Home Affairs, uh, Naredi Pando. It was a long process. We wrote so many letters. It was back and forth, so many calls. Finally, she she accepted three persons to go to see her. At the time, refugees had had problems, but especially Rwandans refugees had the big problem of what you call secession clause. This clause decided on by UNHCR proposed that Rwandan refugees who fled between 1959 and before December 1998 must return to their home country, while those who became refugees after that date need not. This caused great confusion and panic, and even the minister couldn't understand the logic behind this cessation clause. It was uncertained, and uh, Naredi Pando, minister at that time, gave us um, a chance to meet her in Pretoria. So it was two issues to discuss at secession clause and the experience of Rwandan's women refugees in her Department of Home Affairs. Yeah, that was the reason why we went to see Honorable Minister Naredi Pando. Thank you, Chantal. You were a group of three Rwandan representatives who met with the minister, right? And at some point in the meeting, she asked you to bring together some of the women that you were in contact with as a leader in the community so that she could understand the blockages. 
can you remember exactly what she wanted you to do and what you did when you came back to Cape Town? The reason why we wanted to see her, we were concerned that we might be taken back to the country when we see that we are not safe. She decided to come to see the women herself. Uh, many women wanted to see her around 80 to talk to her about her problems, but she said that that big number, it will be difficult to listen to them. If we have a small number, she will be able to listen to the problem much easier. So she shortened the number to 25 women refugees. And she decided to come to Cape Town to meet those women refugees. And then she can listen to the experience in her Department of Home Affairs. And then, Chantal, you started organizing amongst the women. There was a range of issues from the big group, which you so carefully documented in preparation for the meeting. You categorized all the blockages women refugees faced in trying to get their documentation. For example, the risk of being affected by cessation clause and being sent back to your home country when it would not be safe. Issues of endless waiting for permanent residency. Lack of response to the application for certification after 10 years. Women who had to repeatedly renew their permits and the young women who were barred from writing their final matric exams without a maroon ID document. And then lastly, there was also the category of refugee women who were left undocumented when the primary applicant left them. Those were issues that the minister listened at that time. Those problems are not only Rwandan's refugees, it was for the whole in women in general, because all refugees were suffering the same problem. Thank you for the clarity, Chantal. So how did you feel at the end of the meeting? Did you feel that you'd been heard? And afterwards, did you see any changes that came out of this important engagement? I know that cessation has not been an issue in South Africa since then, as the minister successfully took the issue to a meeting with the UNHCR and representatives from the SADC region. After the meeting, there was hope for the women. The women expressed themselves, articulate themselves, they explained their problem. The minister listened to them carefully and promised them that it's going to sort out the problem. It's going to try. What I noticed after the, the outcome of that meeting was great. Many refugees obtained status. Others, the women were respected. Normally, before to go to home affairs, you, we used to go there two days before. You sleep over, you wait. You go five days in a row waiting, go back for to to be to renew your refugee status or your permit. But from then, the women were priority and children. The women were going first. Uh, before, we used to go with the 
children, they miss school for those five days waiting. Since then, no child was supposed to miss school for to renew the document. So as you go by appointment, it was quick and there was no wrong queue. That was very helpful. And uh, among those women that I spoke to, among the 25 women, more than 15 women got the response. They got their status. Those who didn't have got certification. I'm one I witnessed. One of them got accepted. So that was the outcome of, of the meeting of the minister. Well, you know, I, I think we were very blessed at that moment um, to have a woman who was sensitive to women and sensitive to women's issues. So we seized a very important moment to engage with her, and she certainly did what she could. She stood by her promise. This engagement was a milestone. Through refugee women's activism, a number of issues were addressed, including losing access to documentation if the primary applicant dies or abandons their family. These new regulations allow women who were originally on a male primary applicant's file to apply independently to regularize their stay in South Africa. Their children who become adults can also apply independently. But do people from the refugee community know about this? And do officials at home affairs make them aware of this? What can we conclude from all of this? Yes, refugee women raised their voice against cessation clause and in the process raised a number of problems affecting refugee women's rights, including the problem of the system that had the primary applicant as male. And these 25 women worked effectively with a female Minister of Home Affairs that helped to put these changes into law. So now, at least, women and children who were left without a male primary applicant can retain their status. But unless the officials at the Department of Home Affairs are trained and motivated enough to implement these changes, everyone will remain stuck in the same blockages as Mika. And it is Mary who has the last word. Every August, I go out of the way to celebrate Women's Month in this country. Seeing what had happened on the day that the women marched to the union buildings to ask for their rights. It was not only women of a certain race group. It was women of all colors and heights and voices and sizes. That is the beauty when women organize. And I think as refugee women in this country, if we organize, we will get what we want. Not only in this country, but wherever we come from. 
And so I want to encourage refugee women to, to understand what are their rights, understand how to get to access those rights, understand how to speak up, understand how to be activist, because it is very important to be an activist on behalf of your community. But you cannot go solo. You need to walk with your community, protest with them, demand with them. Meaning, if you touch the women, you touch the rock, and in fact, you'll be crushed and you will die. Thank you for listening to Human Rights Live, Securing Women and Children's Rights. We commend the women who shared their service-related problems with the Honourable Minister of Home Affairs, Naledi Pandor, and to the Minister for Prioritising Women in the System and Resolving Many Problems in the Quest to Isolate the Blockages. We need more ministers like Minister Pandor, and we need women at the helm of government. We urge both men and women to listen to this podcast and to share it with your networks. Under the new regulation, refugees and asylum seekers can get their own files if the primary applicant has gone or passed on. Women can have their own files independent of their spouses. We would like to thank those who participated in this podcast, Saha, the production team and the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. Our final Human Rights Live podcast for 2023 is coming soon. It will focus on the lives and dreams of the young people who have grown up in South Africa as refugees.